This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn. First up this hour, an extension of the conversation about hate speech that we had earlier this week. So I think we all know it was a divisive and bruising campaign for GE15. And towards the end, we saw a ramping up of racial rhetoric, both at uh, Chiramas as well as especially online. And then during the four days, as we were waiting for the appointment of the Prime Minister, many NGOs and CSOs also noted a ramping up of disinformation and hate messages messaging online, particularly stoking anti-DAP and anti-Chinese fear and sentiment. Now, since then, uh, political leaders, including the newly minted Prime Minister, Dr. Sri Anwar Ibrahim, uh, Rafizi Ramli, Tan Sri Hari Awang, and others have come out to call for calm and unity. But of course, uh, once you put things online and they spread, it's not always a simple thing to put the genie back in the bottle. So we're going to discuss that shortly with Adnan Yunus, Programme Associate at Architects of Diversity, who has um released a statement along with other CSOs this week about this very issue. In the meantime, though, uh, we also want to hear from you. Let us know. How do you think we can begin to unite again and patch up these divides? Uh, that number to WhatsApp is 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, as promised, joining us now is Adnan Yunus, Program Associate at Architects of Diversity. Adnan, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so on Tuesday, AOD, along with other civil rights groups, released a statement circling the issue of hate speech and disinformation after some posts referencing May 13th specifically started gaining traction. Uh, could you tell us how these posts started and what responses you saw from people on social media? Yeah, sure. So essentially, um, I think the divisive speech, whether it be on TikTok, Facebook or across Twitter, it kind of already started even before the elections. But I think that what even stoked it further was the fact that I think the day after the elections, it was pretty much um, anyone's game as to who would uh, lead uh, the race to Kuchajaya. But I think that after what it became more apparent that PH was going to be the one. And I think this was a huge sense of threat towards those that voted along more uh, conservative lights across the political spectrum. So I think one of the more um, dire posts were actually seen on TikTok. And I think... Because TikTok essentially has played a very crucial role this election in terms of the dissemination of information, whether it be on, you know, voter education, uh, how to vote, especially with you know the lowering of the voting age. So, so many people um, who's going to vote for the first time. It's a huge new demographic. Um, and similarly, at the same time, it wasn't just voter education, right? At the end of the day, we also saw that TikTok was used as a platform for racial and uh, religious sentiment. So obviously it was something that was used on both sides of the divide. And some of the posts that we saw was really, um, I wouldn't just say damaging, or, you know, it didn't just make us feel fear, but it was also very sad to see that some people would go to such lengths, right? So among things that we saw was, for example, uh, people calling for the rise of, um, you know, Muslims to stand against minorities, you know, and, and depicting the use of parangs, for example. And so this was really a, uh, you know, a call for violence. And on top of that, we also, um, I'm not sure if you, know, you saw, but there, were also, there was also a video of, you know, people on horses carrying, you know, for example, pass flags, right? So, so this, was, this is the reality of the situation and this is essentially what we needed to respond to, yeah. 
This might seem, I think, like an obvious question, uh, but why is the weaponizing of May 13th particularly dangerous? Yeah. So you know, when we think about May 13th, yes, there was violence, um, you know, there was pain, there was trauma, and there was death. But more than that, it was actually more of a battle of identity. Now, on one side of the divide, perhaps on more progressive lines, uh, and perhaps within minorities, you find that their fear is real. And their trauma regarding May 13th, 1969 is real as well. I mean, they've had grandparents who lived throughout those times, you know, some of their parents uh, who, you know, died or who, you know, were, whose lives were threatened. But so the, there's a real fear, but also fear exists on the other side of the divide, which is those who are stoking that sense of violence. At the end of the day, right, when we think about May 1969, it being a battle of identity, we cannot underestimate the importance that identity is to these people. Because at the end of the day, when you think about identity, it's a, it's, it's a question of who you are, your personality, your sense of self-worth, right? And so obviously when you have that kind of rhetoric being pushed forward that, you know, if minorities were to come into power, they'll eradicate your identity, that they'll eradicate your race and religion, that can be very challenging to the soul if you think about it. And What's particularly dangerous about this is that it gives this false perception that everyone is out to get them, which in reality is, is really not. Right? I mean, we've seen over 22 months, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, with PH, a government that had more minority, more candidates from you know, minority races and religions. But right, we, we never saw any minimization of uh, Islam or its practices in any sense. So it's because of this fault, it, it's because this rhetoric is false that it makes it all the more dangerous. And it begins with the threat, but then ends up turning into violence. So. And you mentioned a few different uh, social media platforms. How have they reacted in light of these posts circulating? I mean, have they been taken down? Have they been flagged? Yeah. So well, so I'll talk about perhaps three social media uh, platforms, right? So TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. I think as far as Twitter and Facebook are concerned, um, the response has been slightly disappointing. I think especially with Twitter, um, given its recent internal policy changes, um, you know, kind of blurring the lines between hate speech and free speech. So obviously, I think it wasn't very um, responsive, not in the manner that we hoped. But I think TikTok has been far more responsive. I think TikTok has played a very important role. I mean, the, I mean you know, as CSOs, we flagged this content, uh, you know, had reporting mechanisms to, um, you know, the censorship of TikTok, and these posts were taken down. Um, so at the same time, a lot of posts on TikTok still remained up, and I, I can't exactly blame uh, TikTok for this because a lot of these posts were used in certain dialects. So it's not particularly words that are flagged or words that are taken into account by its censorship board or you know, censorship committee. Uh, but definitely, I think that, that their actions have been promising. I think it will be extremely crucial uh, moving forward, especially in the coming months. So the posts are one thing, um, but it's also been reported, and, and the statement also referenced the fact that there is an alleged paid campaign around them, right? There's a reason right. why they've been so coordinated. Um, how would you like to see the posts as well as the campaign investigated? So I think that perhaps you can talk about investigation on three separate grounds, right? So, so firstly, let's talk about SPR. Uh, when we look at you know the Malaysian 
uh, Elections Offences Act of 1954, for instance. Now, it does clearly state, state that, you know, any politician or any candidate that uses hate sentiment to kind of, you know, drive voters is, it is an offence. But the problem with that is that that's the extent to which that act goes. It does not really provide for any regulatory uh, mechanisms to be able to enforce these provisions within the law. So I think that if we talk about investigating them, I think in a large sense, it requires reforms on uh, SPRSN because at the end of the day, um, without these reforms, you can't exactly, you don't really have the means to be able to investigate them in the first place. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. With uh, AOD, we led this uh, volunteer-led program known as Kaminampa. And we found that three, uh, approximately 348 offences were perpetrated by candidates. And these offences were essentially using race and religion as a sentiment on their social media platforms to drive voters to vote for them, to vote a certain way. And while we did make a press statement, while news outlets did carry it, there was no form of response from SPR on that end, right? And the reason, again, is because there is no form, there's no means by SPR to be able to tackle these challenges. So I think in terms of, reforms that we can talk about is, for example, regulatory reforms, reforming the Malaysian Elections Offences Act. I think also having some form of internal tribunal or committee goes a long way. A committee that, you know, specializes in a censorship, that specializes in, say, intergroup contact, ethnic studies, because a lot of these um, offenses need to be contextualized as well. And so I think with these experts on, you know, on such committees, they'll be able to address these situations better, investigate these situations to hold uh, candidates accountable. On a second level, which I think is already being done, uh, perhaps, you know, the police, I, I think police have done a very, very commendable job as far as, you know, warning the rocket about such hate sentiment. Uh, you know, there was no beating around the bush at all. It was clear that, you know, make any more of this content and they'll arrest you. So I think um, definitely these, these efforts need to be perhaps maximized or elevated. So that's the second one. And I think finally, on a more grander scale, we require legal reforms. So um, if you think about the constitution, for example, the constitution, uh, the federal constitution only permits uh, a person to make a case again for discrimination against a perpetrator only if it's between a public body and a private person. Now, if I look at it in terms of election campaigning, right? So, for example, again, back to the offences that we flagged under our Kaminapa campaign, there was no form of legal uh, avenues that could be taken or legal recourse that could be taken because there is no statute that permits us to even make uh, a case. So, for example, if I see a candidate, uh, you know, attacking my race or religion, me being offended by it, I can't sue that person. I can't sue him or her. And so I think that on a greater level, um, we can't. We have to either one intro, introduce uh, new provisions within the constitution, or perhaps uh, introduce a new legislation uh, entirely on this matter. I think only then can we actually talk about constructively introducing investigative measures to be able to tackle these situations and hold politicians accountable. Yeah. So speaking of politicians, right, um, a lot of our prominent political leaders have called for calm um, and for a cooling down of the rhetoric that we've been seeing. But, you know, it's important to say also, right, that in some senses, politicians across the aisle have been responsible for some of the sentiment that we're seeing anyway. So I guess my question is, how can we square this advice away when in some ways they're the ones who started it and now they're trying to end it? Yeah. 
so the thing is, is that, I mean, even being in this line, um, you know, I've always wondered that what could we get politicians to do? How do we get them to change, especially when it comes to, you know, election campaigning? But, you know, I've also come to realize that that politicians are only as powerful. In most cases, they're only as powerful as we allow them to be. And so I think that at the, at the end of the day, you know, the reason why race-based politics has existed for so long, the reason why politicians continue to employ a race-based rhetoric or religious-based rhetoric is because they know that that sentiment can sell. You know, it's like I mentioned earlier, right? identity is not something that should be underestimated. It's something that people hold really closely to themselves. And so I think that we can't, as, as optimistic as I'd like to be, I don't think we can fully trust politicians to conduct themselves in that way. I think in order to see a change, which will not be immediate, change is always organic, but in order to see a change, I think that's where the investigative measures come in. I, I think that politicians will begin to change once they realize that they can't employ this rhetoric for the purpose of getting votes. Once it is actually counting, once they know it's actually counterintuitive for them to employ such rhetoric where they will actually be held accountable, I think that's when we'll actually see some form of organic change away from race-based politics and you know, a campaign that's perhaps more merit and uh, policy-driven. Uh, so my other question is, um, just speaking as somebody who who lives an online life, right, like many yeah. of us, uh, we've seen, seen this time and time again in other countries, other settings, social media campaigns start off being used in a very particular way, maybe aiming to, to sway sentiment or win votes, but then they grow to take a life of their own. And, and you know, we've seen very famous conspiracy theories born from this very thing. So uh, what can be done now in the short term to mitigate hate speech and racial, racial sentiment? Yeah, so I think on various levels, but one, uh, censorship, uh, I think we've uh, talked about it. But also, I think that there also needs to be legislative changes. And perhaps on a, you know, on a more, uh, in terms of how politicians conduct themselves, I think there needs to be some form of ministerial responsibility within uh, the cabinet and also within uh, parliament. I think that, you know, if we look at what happened, you know, with PH in their 32 months in rule, there was a lot of internal power struggles, right? And so in, in that sense, I think that when things seem very shaky, that's when people know that, okay, they, they can use that race and religious sentiment to attack a particular group or to attack a particular political party. But I think that if politicians can employ that sense of ministerial responsibility, present a united front, I think that the Rakyat and their supporters especially will be, um, you know, incentivized to behave in the same manner as well. So, you know, I, I don't think that race-based and, uh, uh, you know, race-based sentiment and religious sentiment of hate, hate speech will, will end just like that. But I think that through these actions, it can actually be mitigated. And additionally, I think you can also, it's, you don't just have to be someone in power. Right. Even if you have, even if you're just someone with a decent following, I think use your voice, use your base, use your platform to do whatever you can. Because I think in a lot of sense, right, a lot of the movements that we've seen, a lot of the changes that we've seen are basically the normal, the common person, you know, speaking out on social media, speaking, speaking truth to power. So I think that in the short term, these are the kind of things that can be done. It's not a solution. I wouldn't say they are short term solutions. But perhaps they are something that we can rely on for the time being in order to be, you know, to, to find ourselves more stable and to make sure that, you know, uh, race, racial and religious sentiment or hate speech is not really um, 
employed in a manner that threatens people, that you know, makes them fear for their safety. You know, the other day when we spoke about this, we received a message from a listener which basically said, I'm not on social media, uh, so I haven't seen yeah. any of this. And in my daily life, I actually feel fine. I, I, I did not notice any such thing. Um, you know, which I guess leads me to wondering whether or not what we're seeing on social media is an accurate representation of how people are feeling in real life or whether it's an amplification and an exaggeration, really, of this sort of sentiment. Yeah. Well, I think yes and no. Um, and again, you know, different social medias have different bubbles. So if you look at, like, for example, Facebook, right, you'll find the more conservative bubble, whereas in you know, Twitter, perhaps more uh, progressive. Um, but yeah, I would say that if the particular post or the particular content is meant to, you know, threaten a particular group, or if say it is outright hate speech, if it's employing race and religious sentiment, then I think that whether it's an accurate representation or not, we have to take it seriously. And I think the fact that, you know, we have past, for example, who won, there was a single party who won the most seats. I think that we can, we can safely say that it was an accurate representation. But similarly, I think that if we were to look at the more progressive side of things, no, I wouldn't say it was an, it's an accurate representation because at the end of the day, um, like it or not, we, we are all still very much stuck in our own uh, political bubbles, right? Where, where like, oh yeah, you know, I feel that things go this way and like we have someone to just agree with us um, outright. So I think on the more conservative line of things, yes, we should take it seriously and it is uh, perhaps a more accurate representation. But on the more progressive side of things, I think that more work needs to be done on, that, on the end. And it is definitely not, I mean, you know, the, it, there's this whole, there's this term known as Twitter Jaya, right? Basically, Twitter Jaya is not real. So, yeah, it's pretty, very uh, uh, concisely, yeah. So, in closing then, uh, earlier we t- spoke about the short term. Um, in the long term, how do you want to see this issue addressed? And just in summary, I know we touched on it through our yeah. interview today. What role will the government and CSOs need to play? Yeah, so I think that as far as the government goes, um, well, one, it's a bit more of, I, I guess, their own sense of self. So there's more introspection that is needed um, within leaders. I think that they have to kind of speak up if they see a political, if they are, that race and religion is being used within their, you know, within their spaces, within their political party. Uh, there needs to be internal reforms, right? I mean, so for example, we had, um, you know, I think Karin Jamaluddin was on the show, was on BFM, he talked about how uh, internally UMNO members are actually speaking out uh, against their leaders, trying to change and reform things internally. And of course, yeah, I mean, whatever it is, we take it with a grain of salt. But I think, you know, the fact that most people are speaking now against um, the UMNO president, right, that, that is a testament to how people want to change internally. So I think that within all uh, race-based or religious-based um, political parties, right, so not just not just you know, UMNO, but even, you know, DAP for that matter, right, if you're race-based, I think they kind of need to reevaluate where they want to take this country and how they want to project themselves to the, to the public. Do they want to continue employing this whole idea of, oh, because I'm the same race as you, only I can protect you. So I think that needs to change. Um, secondly, and I think this applies perhaps to both um, NGOs and uh, political parties and the government, I think there has to be a lot more grassroots engagement. If you look at, you know, both their education, there is a disparity Right. We obviously, I don't think this 
issue for urban areas, but it's obviously an issue for perhaps more rural areas where they have you know, problems with access to internet, access to information, even access to social media for that matter. And you know, when you think about it, right, the reason why racial sentiment and religious hate won largely, well, not they're not in power, but why still won and why the country is deeply polarized is because in a lot of ways, these people who claim to protect race and religion made that effort for grassroots engagement. They went into rural areas, they talked to these people. And so obviously these people in rural areas feel seen, they feel heard, they feel that, you know what, if there's anyone who's going to protect me and my interests, it's going to be this person. So, I, you know, if you think about it, right, when when was the last time, say, for example, DAP, when was the last time they went into uh, a place or a constituency that wasn't in their stronghold, say, for example, in Kelantan and Terengganu, right, to actually engage with people there, engage with youth there, and not not, purely, not just on a political basis to win votes, but, but you know, to kind of um, help them with political literacy or not. It's not really done. And, and the same thing applies uh, to NGOs as well. Uh, you know, uh, last year, I had the privilege of working with um, a group of Kelantan participants. And it's easy to see how they're disenfranchised, it's easy to see how they're excluded from a lot of conversations. So I think that even as NGOs and CSOs go, we kind of need to expand our work. Um, of course, yes, in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of organizations are limited uh, financially to be able to do so. Um, but, and so I guess that's why funding for these things, for such uh, diverse efforts are important. But I would say that, you know, in a lot of ways, um, that change won't be immediate. That change will take some time. And, you know, when I say time, not just even in the next year, perhaps not even the next election. It's something that requires perhaps a decade or so. But I think I am optimistic, you know, being in this line, being the work that I do, you know, seeing people being more open and more acceptable to changes. And I'm also confident in youths, right? Even though um, a lot of people feel that, you know, youths are actually are, are kind of on the same page with each other. No, actually youths are very polarized. But I would say that, you know, in a lot of ways, I think youths are still more open to change. I think youths are more open to listening. And you know, I'm looking forward to being a part of that change. Adnan, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Adnan Yunus, Program Associate at Architects of Diversity, uh, talking about how it is that we can tamp down on the hate speech and racial sentiment we've been seeing, particularly online. Let us know what are your thoughts on this. You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.